Okay, so um, last week, oh, very, very loud. Last week, um, we were looking at a load of lists that were written down about King David's army, about the God that, um, about the army that God was providing for him. Um, and this week, I want to look uh, to start off with this week, and then I'm going to carry on next week, uh, looking at a book that over half of the book is made up of lists. Okay, 53% of the book is made up of lists. Okay, it's a book that's about restoration. It's a book that is about prayer. It's a book that is about protection, both physical and spiritual. And it's a book that can teach us as much about our lives and our church as it does about the history of Jerusalem and its people. Okay, it's the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bible with you, or if you've got a phone app or a tablet app, um, you can open it up, uh, Nehemiah. Okay, I'm going to go through some fairly big chunks of it. Okay, but it'd be great this week if you could kind of read that and read over what we've said today and you'll be all prepared um, for next week. Okay, but it starts like this, right at the start of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 1, um, uh, 1 to 4. If you can find that one, Stephen. That's not in there, okay. Is it not at the bottom? Yeah, right at the bottom. They were, for some reason, they weren't in the same place. Nehemiah 1. Yeah, there we go. Okay, these are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, which is a really cool name. If anybody's thinking about naming a child, okay, Hakaliah, that's a cool name. Uh, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Okay, so Nehemiah's had this message from people who are back in his hometown, the place that he loves, uh, the place that he really desires to be, uh, and the news isn't good. Um, you see that the city of Jerusalem is in a mess. It had been trashed in a siege uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, the, the people of Israel, the majority, were in exile. Okay, they were conquered. They were down, but they weren't out. They were down, but they weren't out. Nehemiah, what does he do? He turns to prayer. He turns to God. So we carry on in verses 5 to 11. It says this. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed your command, not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have." chosen as a dwelling for my name they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man i was cupbearer to the king do you know what Nehemiah teaches us a little bit about prayer when he, when he prays this prayer. Because he says, um, would you let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. Okay, this is not some throwaway prayer. This is not just Nehemiah going, hearing this bad news and going, oh God, will you sort that situation out? Okay, this is not Nehemiah just every now and again being reminded of this thing that's on his heart, this thing that he's thinking about and praying every now and again when it comes to mind. This is something that Nehemiah is praying about day and night. Whenever he's got an opportunity to pray, he's praying and he's asking God to change a situation. Okay, when he prays as well, he confesses his sin. He confesses his part in the problem. He, he talks about what's gone wrong and he, and he confesses that and says, God, I want, I want you to forgive this. I'm sorry for what I've done. The other thing that he does when he prays is he remembers God's promise. Okay, he remembers the instruction that God gave to Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He remembers God's promise. Okay, sometimes we, we really need to focus on the promises that, that God has made. Like, a long time when we were working with the youth, when I was a youth pastor, Ruth used to produce these lists of God's promises. And she used to give them to the young people and people used to put them in the Bible. And all these promises, all these amazing things that God says he will do for you if you just give your heart to him. But unless we get into God's word, unless we know our scripture, unless we read and understand and take in what he says, then we haven't got any of those promises to hang on to because we just don't know what they are. And then he asks, God, would you just use me? God, would you use me and would you bless me in carrying out this task that I believe you want me to do? He tells us just right at the end, after he's told us what the problem was, he's told us what he was praying, he just, little footnote at the end of that bit, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. These people are in exile, the, the Jews are, are cast out, but many of them are in, in, in other nations and taken into, into kind of servitude and slavery or, or having to work their way up in other cultures and, and things that aren't recognizable to them. 
Nehemiah's been elevated to this position of being the cupbearer to the king. Now, I don't know if you know, but a, a cupbearer, not just somebody who brings a cup, okay? Uh, you know, if you've ever watched like spy movies and stuff like that, you're always really dubious when somebody gives somebody a cup, aren't you, to the good guy. You think they're going to poison them. You think somebody's going to get poisoned here. The cupbearer's job was to test the wine of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned and then take it to the king. So he's this really important guy who's he's really close to the king. He would be seeing the king every day, and the king would be seeing him. He's elevated to a high position where he's privileged. You know, I don't think that the king would have wanted somebody who wasn't dressed well, somebody who wasn't well looked after and well fed in his presence. He wouldn't want to see that. So Nehemiah's got to this place where he's privileged that he's going to be sharing food that's coming in uh, to the king. You know, he's going to be fed well, he's going to be dressed well. He's a privileged man. He's been raised up and he's trusted. The king trusts him that he's tried this wine that comes to him every time, that it's not going to cause any harm to the king. So Nehemiah's in this amazing position where he's got access to the head of the government. We talk about spheres of influence. And if you uh, have a little look, and if you Google at some point, they, they talk about these seven mountains, seven mountains of culture. Uh, and I probably can't remember them all, but there's education, um, there is family, uh, there is business, there is entertainment, there is one of them is government. Okay? Right, and Nehemiah has been placed in this position of influence to the person who is the head of the government. You know, we, we're in so many positions in the jobs that we're in, in the families that we're in, in the streets that we live in. Okay, we are in positions of influence, whether we realize it or not. Sometimes we need to ask God to use the place that we are, use the influence that we have. So here's Nehemiah, and he's heartbroken by the state of his home. So he goes on in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, it says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was bought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. That's amazing, isn't it? That's, that's a really cool thing to know. When some of us go about our, our work and our jobs and things like that, we would we ever be noticed by our boss if we were upset about a massive thing that, that was really weighing heavy on our heart, was really important to us because we'd never looked miserable or grumpy in our boss's presence before. So I think that's a pretty cool thing to start off with. If, if he hadn't been positive all the rest of the time, the king would have never noticed that there was a problem. Okay, I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? Again, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar again, Nehemiah turns to prayer. He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. That probably was a quick throw up one because I don't imagine that the, the king would have wanted him waiting around and staying silent and not answering his question. 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleases the king to send me. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. The king offers him and will grants him this safe passage. And he also grants him supplies. He gives him this letter to tell the guy who's in charge of the, the, the park, the managed woodlands and forests to give um, Nehemiah the wood, the timber that he needs to build the wall. And do you know what? If God is asking you to do something today, if God has put something on your heart that is an issue that you know is not right and you need to sort out, God will resource you for the task that's ahead of you. God's not going to do it particularly because you're this kind of special person who's ready for the task or, or you're the, you know, the most qualified person for the job. But God's going to do it because he's gracious. And Nehemiah recognizes that because he says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. The king granted my requests because God had his gracious hand on me. You know, Nehemiah's got no illusion that he is anything special. So he gets on with a task, trusting that God is going uh, to achieve this goal through his availability, through him saying, I'll do it. So he gets safe passage and supplies, he's resourced, and then he heads out. And he passes through these areas and he picks up these materials and then he, he gets to Jerusalem. And to start off with, he doesn't tell uh, everybody what he's going to do. He heads out uh, at night and he goes around the city and he, he checks everything out and he checks out um, where the walls are and he checks out um, the damage and he, and he takes it all in and kind of organizes himself, prepares himself for what's coming ahead. Then in Nehemiah 2, 17, it says this, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah has identified a problem, but then he's come up with a solution. Okay, one of the best things I was ever taught uh, by, by people who have managed me over the years in jobs is the advice, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. 
Okay, and I, I like to say that all the time. Okay, uh, I like to say that to people in the office. Don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution. Do you know what? When we actually delve in, and we actually, rather than focus on a problem, focus on an issue, focus on what is wrong. If we start to focus on how we can make it right, and then we go and say to people, "Come on, let's make this right together." That that means healthy growth. That means healthy community. Okay, that is what Nehemiah has done. He's not come in and just gone, you see the trouble you're in? Okay, your walls are broken down, your gates are burnt down, you're a disgrace. And leave it there and just kind of tell them off. He says, we, to start off with, he says, see the trouble we're in? He hasn't been resident there for all this time. He's been, he's been off somewhere else. But he says, the trouble we're in, Come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. He goes on. And this is where it starts to get a bit listy. Okay, in, in Nehemiah 3, uh, 1 to 7, this is just part of it. And it starts to document the work that was done. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. Malachi would like that one. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. Again, lots of great names in here if you have a child on the way. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merrim son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banar, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshanar gate was repaired by Joida, um, son of Pasea, and Meshulam, son of Besedea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Mer- places under the authority of the governor of trans-Euphrates. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. But you know what? From this list, we find out what their priorities were. I don't hear the word wall in there, where the task that seems to have happened is that... um, We've got Nehemiah coming. He's noticed that the walls are broken down. And then he starts to list off the work that they're doing. And he doesn't mention walls. He starts talking about gates. He starts talking about these gates. And I was reading it. I was thinking, what about the walls? Why don't you start with the walls? And then as I thought about it more, just like the other week, I was thinking about all this great big list of all these people that were being added to David's armies. I started to find out why. I started to find out what their priorities were, what their thinking was behind it. And I reckon it was this. I reckon it was the fact that the gates were still the easiest entry points into the city. Because when the gates burnt down, they left a gap. The walls, they were in ruins, but I I don't know if you've ever seen any ruins or or demolition before anything's been carted away. It's not an easy place to get around. If you knock a massive wall down, there is a big pile of rubble. It's not the easiest thing to get in. It's not the hardest. It's not going to stop any kind of raging army or attackers coming in. But the easiest entry point into Jerusalem was still the space where the gates had been burnt down. 
It was still easier to access the city through its open, burned-down gates than over the rubble remains of its walls. And do you know what? The people of Jerusalem needed to start to protect their city, but not just from warriors, not just from armies who would come in and try and attack them, but they needed to protect it from the seemingly everyday kind of people that might come into their city who weren't the people of God. People who would come in and subtly they would be doing things that wouldn't be according to the law that God had put in place. People who didn't respect God. People who didn't respect his promises. People who weren't going to live that way. People who would come in and influence the people of Jerusalem. See, this is not just about physical protection. It's about spiritual protection. The walls of the city. We learn later on that that actually to to prevent uh, the people uh, being tempted to sin and and trade with people on the Sabbath that were coming in that weren't uh, people of God, that that later on when the whole thing sorted out, uh, Nehemiah has the gates shut for the Sabbath. So nobody can enter the city. Nobody can come in and, and disrupt what's going on, however subtly it might have been. And it got me to thinking, what, what are the gates? What are the gates and the easy access points in my life, in your life? What are the places where the enemy is able to gain access subtly to distract us, to tempt us to sin? What are those easy access points? Sometimes... We're going to need to put a gate in place. I'm going to challenge you this morning. Where is it in your life? Where is the easy access point that you need to put a gate in place? You need to put a barrier up. You need to say, I'm not having that coming into my life anymore. I'm not having this distraction coming in. I'm not having this temptation coming in. Maybe you're, you see, the things that can tempt us and distract us can seem really, really little, can seem really unimportant. But, you know, if, if our sin comes through the things we end up watching on TV or, or on the internet, then the easiest way to get rid of those distractions is to put up a gate to the amount we're using that thing. Or maybe for a while just cut it off completely and say, God, I'm just going to turn my focus away from this thing. And I'm just going to have a time apart from it. See, right at the start, Nehemiah talks about this thing. He prayed, but he also fasted. Okay, he went without food. And and normally when we see fasting in the Bible, it's to do with food. But I want to say there's a principle of fasting that our modern society that is so full of so many different things that, that, that feed us like food does. Sometimes we might need to fast that. Sometimes we might need to say, uh, and I know kind of Dan's done this before and Luke's done this before. He said, you know what? I'm spending too much time on my games console. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to put all my games away. And then Luke put his, his Xbox up the loft and just left it there so we couldn't go on it for a while. Not because the Xbox was completely wrong in itself. It was just because he was getting distracted and spending far too much time with it. And he shared that um, with us. But... Where is it we might need to put a gate in place? 
In chapter 3, verse 28, it goes on. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Again, lists and lists of what went on uh, and, and how the building work went on. And we might think that's not important, but something that jumps out to me here is that each of them made repairs to the section that they found in front of them. Okay, the priests made repairs each in front of his own house. Zadok, opposite his house. Shemaiah made repairs. They all made these repairs that were next to them. Now, as we start to build, as we grow as community, we all have this responsibility to be part of that. And as a church, as we grow as a family, we're going to find things that, that need building up. Maybe they were up and strong at one point, but have fallen down. And do you know what? It's our responsibility when we see that thing in front of us to take responsibility for it if you see something that needs doing jump in grab some people take responsibility for it and build it bring strength back to it don't let what's in front of you become a weak spot for everybody else and that can be tough because sometimes the thing that we find in front of us is in a much worse state than the thing that our neighbour might find in front of them. That's where we dig in. That's where we get people to come in and help. But if you identify something and you see it clear as day in front of you and it's not how it should be, we need to take responsibility for that. Take up the challenge. Nehemiah 4. Uh, starting at um, verse 1. Start to get opposition, and it's been coming through, and we've skipped over some of that. You can read it for yourself. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite who was at his side, said, what they're building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall, till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out. 
And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them. And we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up uh, and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So trouble comes against. And when trouble comes against us as a church, as a church nationwide, as a church worldwide, okay, we might need to stand up. We might need to protect what is going on. Do you know what? If something comes in and attacks you, one of these temptations that I was talking about before, okay, if there's stuff that's drawing you away from God, what can you do? We've already talked about putting up a gate, but then Nehemiah goes one step further and he puts guards on the gates. He puts guards in the weak positions. Do you know what? That's like being accountable to people. You know when we're struggling and we've got something and we're finding it really hard, then actually sharing that with someone who can pray for us, who we can be accountable to, who can keep asking us those questions. How are you doing with that? What can I do to help you? How can we get through this together? Do you know, that's like putting a guard on your gate. Be in community with one another. Speak to each other. But be prepared for a fight. Take your turn when other people are working and they're building hard. Take your turn to be the protector. Take your turn to be the guard. So when these insults, when people are trying to put people down, when people are making false accusations about people, Be the guard. Get in there. Defend the weak points. Defend the people who are trying to build. Take your turn. Stand in the gap. Nehemiah 6, 15 to 16 says this. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. The walls are finished. 
they're secure, the weak points have been reinforced, all the while doing this, they've worked together as community, they've, they've stood up for one another, they've protected one another, and they've, they've called out to people they need help from. You know, you might think that the book stops here, with Nehemiah, but it doesn't. Because it goes on for the next few chapters, and it starts to talk about what I'm going to look at uh, next week, next Sunday morning. What do we do when we've built the walls? What do we do when we've built something secure and strong? How do we live? What does it look like to live and maintain a life that's surrounded by protection? That's what we're going to look at next Sunday morning. That's where I'm going to take you with the rest of this book of Nehemiah. I'd love it uh, if you read that book. Kind of read through it, see what happened, find all those details. You know, carry on reading on and you're you kind of like prepared for what I'm bringing next week. But I just want to pray for you. Uh, and then we're going, to, um, we're going to just worship uh, a little bit as we close. Um, let's just stand together. Let's stand together. Do you know, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, they took a stand. Uh, and sometimes it's good to do things symbolically because it kind of helps us to understand uh, what we're doing. And it gives us a little bit of an insight.